Producers of SPCA, episode 52, for the week ending May 12, 2017, The Firing the Investigators Edition. This week, Jay and I have a wide-ranging discussion of some of the week's top compliance-related stories. We discuss an interesting article by Michael Volkoff in Corruption, Crime, and Compliance about the real risk of an FCPA enforcement action. We take a hard look at FIFA firing its internal investigators for doing their job, i.e. investigating. Jay discusses the Ethics and Compliance Initiative's report on the use of corporate monitors. We discuss the role of judgment in a CEO as opposed to tone at the top and consider some of the actions of Barclays' Jess Staley as reported by James Stewart in his Common Sense column in the New York Times. We highlight the role of incentives in a corporate compliance program. We discuss the Astros having the best record in baseball and the Rockets gagging on the big one, Game 6 loss to the San Antonio Spurs. Jay previews his weekend report, Compliance Lessons from a Trip to the San Diego Zoo. Finally, listeners to this podcast can receive a discount to Compliance Week, which I'll link to in the show notes. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, episode 52 for the week ending May 12th, 2017, the Firing the Investigators edition. As always, I'm joined by my cohort and co-host, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors. Jay, welcome. Good morning, Tom. Looking forward to uh, jumping into this week's stories. We've got a uh, potpourri of uh, corporate potential malfeasance. How's that for a mouthful? That's uh, that's almost as good as saying that the Houston Astros have the best record in Major League Baseball. And somebody was complaining that they were switched from the National League to the weaker American League. That's much weaker American League. <laughs> so, uh, although we have to bookend that with uh, the Houston Rockets gagged on the big one last night. And lost to a San Antonio Spurs team who had their two best players out on injury, uh, playing at home, must win game six. And uh, I think they lost by 35 points. It was one of the great, great, great gags of all time in uh, professional sports, uh, even beyond Houston sports, where we gag all the time. So um, I don't know uh, what your thoughts on that might be, but mine were that um, I have to put this one on the coach because I think the players were just absolutely gassed, and uh, they just had nothing in the tank. Um, he was playing a six- and seven-man rotation for the last four games, and I just don't think you can do that um, in the playoffs. But uh, good luck to the Spurs, although I think we're just uh, – they're a mere roadblock, if at all, in the way to a third uh, consecutive finals between the Golden State Warriors and Cleveland Cavaliers. Well, I don't know. I, you got me on the Boston bandwagon last week, and uh, they're up 3-2 on the Wizards. So uh, who knows? Maybe there's <clears throat> something happening with Isaiah Thomas, maybe uh, uh, with his uh, situation with his sister. Maybe there's something magical about that team. So we'll have to see what happens with the uh, Celtics and the Wiz. Yep, yep. So uh, anyway, but uh, as you said, Jay, kind of an interesting week. Um no uh, real FCPA enforcement action announcements, but lots of things in compliance and ethics. 
So um, one of the articles that struck me this week from the Commentariate was an article by Mike Volkoff about the real risk in an FCPA enforcement action. And, you know, you have been involved in multiple investigations. Uh, you've been involved uh, as a service uh, provider and uh, to multiple companies who've gone through this process. And you would probably have some pretty good idea of what the real costs are. But uh, I think Mike was right to identify that the, the fine and penalty is really, um, uh, while not insignificant, is not the most significant cost. Uh, certainly you have reputational issues. Uh, investigative and remediation costs can uh, run from two to six times what the uh, final fine and enforcement. And I'd like to focus on the, the cost, the kind of psychic cost to the corporation, because I talked to I interviewed Dan Chapman on this issue once. Dan is the uh, former CCO at Parker Drilling and got them through uh, their enforcement action. Then he went over to Cameron, got them through another issue. Now he's the uh, CCO at Vimplecom after their enforcement action. So um, big job there. But he said the, the really the psychic cost of uh, people worrying about FCPA investigations and even the time. Uh, he, uh, Parker Drilling, he estimated that senior executives spent at minimum 25% of their business day on issues related to the enforcement action, whether that be responding to requests for reduction, providing information to him or outside counsel, uh, working on the remediation, uh, retraining and retrenching. Um, so you have both uh, people having to uh, actually do uh, work around uh, those issues, and then uh, kind of the cost of everything stopping just to worry about that. So, um, and that didn't even get to reputational damage, stock price issues, whether you're going to put on be put on a debarred list, list formally by the government or informally by companies who are not going to do business with you going forward. So, lots of different issues that uh, I thought Mike really articulated well. So, what were your thoughts? I kind of took this in a different way. Uh, you know, he's entitled this the the real risk of an FCPA enforcement. And I think, um, you know, Mike did a wonderful job of articulating um, that we live in a much smaller FCPA world from an information perspective, from a cooperation perspective. So while we're always talking about the uh, internal calculus that a company needs to do to decide whether or not they need to self-disclose and go forward, um, you know, Mike really talks about that you could have multiple touch points where uh, a potential uh, FCPA violation could be known to the government. It might happen in uh, the location in a foreign country where you're working, and that might be known by the government, and that could be shared with the DOJ and the SEC. You have uh, whistleblower actions. You have all sorts of different things, um, you know, all sorts of uh, things in terms of uh, tr trade and tariffs. So there could be many different times or even just an industry that you're working in. You know, a couple of years back, there was lots of things happening in China and happening with regard to the pharmaceutical industry. So not only do you have to look at the cost to the company, the, the psychic costs, the optical costs, but I think you also really have to take a look at what are you doing within your house and uh, I think, you know, my takeaway from Mike's thing is that there is much more chance of something uh, seeing the light of day. So 
gone are the days of just kind of uh, sweeping this under the rug. And it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be vigilant, that you shouldn't self-remediate, that you shouldn't assess, but it just means that if uh, something like this does come up, there is a higher chance of risk that the government, that the uh, feds, that the DOJ and the SEC might be knocking on your door. You know, that's absolutely right. And just the, the uh, even the number of ways you described that the information could get to the government, I, I would say it's really exponentially beyond that as well. Uh, you know, competitors, uh, other governments, uh, disgruntled employees, disgruntled former employees, um, uh, the newspaper, uh, the press, for the state, uh, as we have seen in uh, several very high-profile cases. So um, uh, you're right. Mike's absolutely right. And just the, the cost alone um, for all of these issues uh, really, I think, lead to um, a solution of putting a best practices compliance program in place and actually operationalizing your compliance program so that, uh, one, you would detect and prevent, but two, if you something does come up, you have your best chance to uh, get a very favorable uh, result from uh, the government. Jay, we actually we had a, a very high-profile firing of a lead, uh, actually two lead investigators, not one, in a very high-profile government investigation this week, and um, we're not talking. And we're about- not. We're- Yes. We're not talking about something here in the U.S. We're uh, talking about an article that Tom contributed to uh, Compliance Week on May 10th, and it's entitled FIFA Fires Its Own Investigators. So what happened, Tom? So um, I think most of the listeners of our podcast have uh, followed the affairs of FIFA through their corruption scandal. The uh, U.S. Department of Justice really leading the efforts to uh, 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 try to break the corrupt cabal that was running FIFA through a variety of of laws other than not including specifically the FCPA, money laundering, extortion, bribery, uh, various other uh, white-collar laws that that were broken by FIFA executives in awarding um, uh, World Cup uh, bids uh, out in 2018 and 2022. Um, But FIFA itself really doesn't seem to have learned very much because they fired uh, both the um, judge uh, who, uh, the prosecutor and the judge, the judge was a gentleman named Hans Joachim Eckert and a prosecutor, Cornell Borberly, who were the lead investigators for internal corruption at FIFA. And uh, they were in the middle of uh, several high-profile investigations of FIFA employees uh, at not employees of uh, executive committee members. And so they were just fired. And uh, clearly thinking that uh, they could get away with it, the FIFA board uh, led by the current uh, new head of FIFA has uh, fired them. So one would ask the question whether FIFA is actually serious about uh, cleaning up its own house, how the Department of Justice and others will respond when FIFA is trying to claim it's really a victim of all of these uh, senior execs and uh, board members, uh, executive committee members, um, bribery and corruption. Uh, And here they terminate the people who have been uh, uh, brought on specifically to investigate it. So optically, it's horrible for FIFA. On the other hand, they don't answer to anybody. Um, They're a private uh, organization headquartered in Switzerland, domiciled in Switzerland. Apparently, they don't answer to the Swiss government. 
so they can pretty much do whatever they want. They do not take, uh, for the most part, government fun funding. So there's really no sanction that can be levied uh, along those lines. There are businesses, of course, and uh, national soccer organizations that fund FIFA and keep it going. But those organizations do not seem to have uh, really been too bothered by any of this and are continuing to support FIFA. So uh, whether you can get away with uh, firing a lead investigator uh, in the United States or Switzerland, um, will be, uh, I think, debated going forward, but um, very, very bad optics for FIFA. Uh, I would say that was damaging reputationally, except that I'm not sure their reputation could be damaged any more uh, than what's uh, gone on. Uh, one can only wonder what the Department of Justice will think about this, and uh, if the DOJ turns its sights on FIFA, really uh, where they might uh, take that portion of the uh, investigation going forward. Now, did you say FIFA is set up as a nonprofit? Is that what you said or not? It, it is, yes. So it's like my other favorite sports organization, the National Football League? No, uh, it's not because uh, there is no control over FIFA. In the United States, um, there is some modicum of control by U.S. law over U.S. nonprofits, apparently in Switzerland, for international organizations, there's basically no controls uh, or oversight from the government. So uh, here in the United States, uh, you can have a National Football League making, I think at last report, some $18 billion, of course, nonprofit status. You can have uh, uh, a, a commissioner who runs rampant over the rights of both uh, member teams and uh, individual employees, i.e. the players. Um, Tom Brady. Tom Brady, Tom Brady, Tom Brady. Uh, but there are others uh, that have been uh, right run over as well. Um, but the, at the end of the day, the tax code in the United States and the U.S. government will control. That's not uh, true at FIFA. So it's really unfair to um, compare the National Football League because I don't think you can accuse the, uh, the owners, the members of the executive committee, the multi-billionaires who uh, own the teams of having engaged in bribery and corruption to actually get their franchises. Great. Thank you for, uh, for swatting that softball. Yes. Yes. So, um, Jay, we had a very interesting report from, uh, the ECI, the ethics and compliance initiative around the use of corporate monitors. So why don't you kind of pick it up from there? Sure. Um, we're very excited about this. The, um, the benchmarking group was uh, headed by um, Eric Feldman, one of my colleagues at Affiliated Monitors, and we also did uh, sponsor the research. And um, what this new report uh, indicates is that the use of monitors by public and private sector organizations is on the rise as a preferred risk assessment tool. So I know uh, Earlier in the year, uh, I was lamenting that there does not seem to be a lot of activity uh, upon the, uh, the DOJ enforcement front. There's a little bit more activity under SEC. And um, what we're finding, as uh, the report states, that people are looking at using self-mandated monitors as a preferred risk assessment tool. And... Um, Basically, the benchmarking report uh, includes information that talks about how you go about selecting a monitor, contracting for monitor services, and completing a monitor engagement. Uh, basically, it's a practical guide into working with voluntary or court appointment monitors 
and the report provides tips for managing and monitoring engagement in a way that establishes and sustains trust between the parties and maximizes the value of addressing issues related to the monitorship. Uh, further, the report details what to consider when selecting a monitor and provides direction through the full monitor engagement lifecycle. So um, we're very excited to be partnered in this with ECI. And um, in the show notes, we will have um, a, uh, a link to the news release where you can download the executive summary of this report. Uh, the full white paper is available to ECI members. And then addition we're going to have another Easter egg for you that we will have a link to a webinar that um, Eric participated in uh, with Michael Callens from NASDAQ, and there will be a link to that in the show notes. So, um, you know, this kind of uh, continues a the theme that Tom and I have been, um, you know, discussing for the better part of this year that uh, there is definitely a rise in the use of monitors and not only from um, a regulatory perspective, but also, as the report says, as a tool for companies to use for self-assessment and then even potentially if there is self-remediation. Um, we've always talked about that you only have one chance to go forward to the DOJ and you want to go forward and be as credible as possible. And if you've started to do self-assessments and do self-remediation, um, I think that goes a long way into discussing how serious a company is about uh, you know, handling issues internally that arise. So Jay, is that really this the second part, the voluntary use of a monitor, is that something that you and affiliated monitors are seeing companies use more often? Is it used in what I would call the anti-corruption compliance space, or is it used in other spaces? And if it's used in other spaces, is there not really cross-fertilization, but cross-lessons that uh, our primary audience of anti-compliance, uh, excuse me, anti-corruption compliance specialists might be able to uh, take home? Yeah, um, you know, a lot, lot of, lot of different areas to answer in that question. Um, what, what I'll first confirm is that yes, we are seeing a rise more of the uh, proactive self-initiated monitor, and um, you know, really, when a monitor comes in, um, we are there to support the company, but at the same time, we are there uh, representing a regular regulatory body. So there's sometimes a misconcession on, you know, are we the NARC or are we supporting the company? So in terms of, you know, supporting the company, when we are in there, we are in a different position than if a law firm or outside counsel is in there. Uh, they're really in there more from a gotcha perspective that they are running an investigation and they are looking for data points that either uh, point to uh, further malfeasance or say that, you know, there is everything is okay. What we are in there is we're more uh, concerned about uh, looking at the culture of an organization and kind of like when you're talking about uh, embedding controls in the organization, we're looking at helping the organization come up with the best path on a go forward basis. So how do we prepare them? How can we inculcate culture and how can we put them on a path that they will not be recidivist? So those are the goals, I think, by bringing on an internal monitor that we are there. We've done over 500 engagements since 2004. So we have uh, you know, cross industry experience 
and we're very well, uh, you know, educated on where do we look for, where are the pressure points, where does culture need to be improved? And that is not really something that is addressed on the initial investigation. It might be invest on the, uh, you know, in, investigated I guess investigate is the wrong world, but it might come to play in the future remediation after there's been some type of a settlement. But we'd like to get in there early, use our knowledge and help companies start building ethics and culture into their day-to-day activities. And uh, Jay, if I could just uh, maybe give a little bit of a teaser hint, if you're going to be in Houston on uh, November 2nd, Eric Feldman's actually going to speak to the Houston Greater uh, Ethics and Business Roundtable, or Houston Business Ethics and Business Roundtable, uh, on this topic. So Gerber will be presenting Eric Feldman. Uh, hopefully, if uh, you're in town, you'll be able to join us. But uh, it's really a fascinating area. I, I heard about it multiple years ago, and now it's, um, as within many developments in our field, Jay, we see something that uh, at one time was, was uh, very few people were doing, and then it became sort of cutting edge. Then it became best practices, and now it's just sort of a regular practice. And this type of proactive use of an outside expert uh, on a really um, uh, ongoing basis uh, can really help drive the operationalization and uh, efficiency of your compliance program. So I'm going to be very interested to see uh, from the service provider perspective what insights you can bring because I really want the uh, compliance, greater compliance community to understand this is a very valuable tool, and uh, I'd like to see um, more use of it, more discussion of it. Uh, obviously, this report uh, that um, ECI has put out is uh, very significant, and uh, we will uh, look forward to continuing this discussion because I find this development uh, very, very positive for the entire profession. I appreciate you taking some time and and shining some light on it. And uh, I guess we can go back into the weekly stories. And we have another article that you found um, from one of our favorite places, the New York Times, and uh, one of our uh, favorite business writers, James B. Stewart. So, uh, Tom, tell us uh, what is the latest news from Barclays? So this is uh, really the question I wanted to pose, Jay, to both you and to our listeners. We, uh, Tone at the Top is, if not the most ubiquitous, one of the most ubiquitous statements uh, in compliance. But this article by James Stewart talked about Jess Staley, the um, current CEO of Barclays, and it really focused on judgment. And that's really not something that I think the compliance profession uh, really discusses enough, which is judgment of a CEO and judgment of senior executives. And what really uh, differentiates someone who's been an extremely successful business person, may have been an extremely successful division president or executive vice president, uh, EVP, from a a truly great uh, CEO. And that may come down to judgment because uh, Stuart detailed two really lapses in judgment of uh, Jess Staley. And the first one we've talked about at some length on this podcast, which is where he uh, tried to use company's internal security department to uh, unmask an anonymous whistleblower. And there was also information uh, about uh, his uh, 
Staley's going after a business competitor who had uh, made a uh, hostile takeover um, of a company that uh, his brother-in-law was involved with. And um, the kind of familiar, uh, familiar uh, family, familia contact, uh, not so much as a conflict of interest, but really putting the interest of his brother-in-law above that of his business. And um, uh, where the, the um, company uh, that uh, Barclays was doing business with was in a position contra to the interests of his brother-in-law. And when you have a CEO engaging in those types of missteps of judgment, uh, I'm really of the opinion that uh, that can portend a situation further down the road where a much more serious misstep can occur, uh, up to and including illegal conduct. Uh, now, coming from Houston, uh, Enron is never far from anyone's mind, and Kenley was clearly uh, a person of very poor judgment, um, uh, criminally convicted for his part in the Enron case. So that, that example is never far from anyone's minds down here. But it was really an interesting article, and it really got me thinking about uh, what's the difference between uh, a really a top senior exec and a CEO, and why and how a CEO uh, it is different. Uh, in one of my podcasts, uh, my podcast on business leadership, 12 O'Clock High, uh, Richard Lummis and I explored this issue um, more in depth because a CEO uh, – People really watch a CEO more, much more closely, much more than you would watch an EVP or, or a division president. And everyone turns on and hangs on the words, the phrases, the body gestures, um, the uh, unintended uh, signals, the nonverbal signals of a CEO to try to figure things out. And when you've got a CEO who twice now uh, once engages in what I think was, uh, if not illegal, certainly unethical conduct, and trying to unmask the anonymous whistleblower, and then uh, as to um, going to bat for his brother-in-law uh, against uh, clients of uh, the firm, uh, that would certainly uh, violate a business judgment, if not unethical behavior, um, really points to lapses in judgment. And uh, how, how I once heard James Baker ask before the 2008 election, how can you determine if somebody's um, qualified to be president, he said, well, it's pretty easy. You elect them president and see if they can do the job. Um, but uh, at first I, I was persuaded by that, but now I'm beginning to think that, uh, you know, maybe that's just too easy because there are going to be situations <clears throat> where you can look at somebody's past history and see they made a series of missteps. They made a series of mistakes in judgment, and uh, that could lead, if they are a leader of a very large organization, to a catastrophic failure whether that failure be uh, of, a, of a country or the failure be uh, of a company which could lead to illegal conduct, certainly what we saw in Houston uh, around Enron. So I was just fascinated by the issue of judgment, and, and that's really something we don't talk about, I think, uh, at all in our world, and maybe that's a discussion uh, we need to start having. Well, I, I think that, you know, what we've kind of seen out there with uh, – all these uh, confirmation hearings, uh, you know, over the last few months is that it really seems to be very difficult to um, separate your ethical answers from political answers. And we've seen 
there are very uh, many depth ways that these uh, people can avoid answering a question. And they can say, well, you know, it's a hypothetical or, you know, of course I would do this or I can't tell you I'm going to do that. So, you know, I, I like the point that you bring up before that, you know, past performance doesn't necessarily dictate how somebody's going to behave. So if you can't, you know, base that decision on the past performance, you know, what is that indicator that you're going to use? We're all looking for red flags, right? We want to make sure that we're doing business with people who are honest and reputable. So, um, you know, when, when are those red flags viable and when are they not? And um, I guess the other kind of more um, deeply hidden point is that, you know, if you're a good land manager or if you're a good leader, um, is it is it because you are a good manager or a good leader or is it because you've been lucky that you've had the right people behind you? And then when you get too big and you take the top spot somewhere else and your true colors show, you know, what what is responsible for that? Jay, um, I've been doing a podcast series this month on one month to better compliance through the use of uh, human resources. And I had two podcasts I just wanted to highlight for our listeners this week if they haven't uh, checked them out. In one, I talk about uh, incentives and a compliance program uh, for executives and how you can incentivize executives uh, through uh, your compliance program to further your compliance agenda. And the second is really what are the negative aspects and implications of incentives and sales programs? And there I take a look at uh, Wells Fargo from the compliance perspective. So if you're interested at all in your incentives, both uh, incentivizing compliance and incentives in your sales structure, I would uh, urge you to check out these two podcasts. I'm going to link to them in the uh, the show notes, and they're up on my website, fcpacompliancereport.com, in my one-month series, and one-month to better compliance through HR. Jay, unfortunately, we're getting to near the end of our time, but I was wondering if you might be able to give our listeners a sneak peek uh, at the Jay Rosen Weekend Report. Uh, so, Tom, uh, this week's weekend read is going to be uh, Ethics and Compliance Lessons You Can Learn at the Zoo. Uh, the girls have been taking uh, standardized tests all week. So as a surprise after school, we're going to pick them up, jot down to the uh, San Diego Zoo. And uh, tomorrow morning, we're going to have breakfast with the pandas. So I will let you know uh, what type of ethics and compliance lessons I learned from our uh, furry four-legged friends. Well, that is one of America's greatest treasures, the San Diego Zoo. I've been there several times. Uh, I would only request that you would post a picture and or video of the hippos uh, for Mrs. Compliance Evangelist. She's a huge hippo fan. And uh, I wish you all a great amount of uh, enjoyment at the San Diego Zoo. Uh, Jay, if I could, uh, I am speaking at Compliance Week uh, from May 22 to 24. I'm uh, chairing or, or um, hosting a panel with uh, Kara Brockmeyer and Rin McEachern. And we're going to talk about uh, government investigations from their uh, perspectives. Uh, Kara, now former head of the FCPA, uh, the SEC's FCPA unit, Ren, of course, head of the FBI's uh, FCPA unit. I'll also be on a panel with uh, my Compliance Week colleagues, Bill Coffin and Joe Mont, and we're going to talk about uh, compliance in the Trump administration, really the, the first 100 days. 
So uh, if you're going to be at Compliance Week, uh, please uh, uh, stop by and say hello at one of those two events. And then listeners to this podcast can receive a discount, and I'll link to that uh, in the uh, that code in the show notes. Um, next week, I'm speaking uh, two two events in Philadelphia. So it'll uh, be interesting uh, to uh, report on my uh, uh, ventures in the city of brotherly love and perhaps have a, uh, a Philly cheesesteak uh, while I'm at it. And uh, end of next week, uh, a week from today, I will be up in uh, San Francisco uh, for a one-day SECE uh, San Francisco um, one-day Ethics and Compliance Institute. And uh, there'll be um, different local speakers there, and it'll be fun. So if anybody in the um, Bay Area and the Ethics and Compliance community has an opportunity to attend, um, it is next uh, Friday, the uh, 19th. So I look forward to seeing you up there. And um, I think that does it. So on behalf of Tom Fox, uh, the Compliance Evangelist, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for uh, spending some time with us and looking at the FCPA week that was for May 12, 2017. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can reach Jay Rosen at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you will join us for the next episode of This Week in FCPA. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.